Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that there is a great power in prayer. There is great power in praise. We know, Lord God, and, and freely confess that your word tells us that uh, you indeed are lifted up and are present in the prayers and the praise of your people. So you are present now among us. And remind us, Lord God, that as we gather to worship, we uh, come to a place that is more than just a physical building. But as your word tells us, uh, particularly in the letter to Hebrews, that we have, we have been summoned, we have been gathered here by your spirit to, uh, to Mount Zion, to a place, Father, where not only do you dwell, but those who constantly serve you, angels and those saints who have died and are now in glory, worshiping and praising and adoring you. And we come to you, Lord God, um, from weeks that perhaps have been stressful. We come to you, Father, with hearts and souls that perhaps are, are thirsting for you. And we find that perhaps this morning we have literally either been dragged or have dragged ourselves to come here. Sometimes because it's just the thing to do. But other times, Father, it is because we are desperate to to worship you and to receive from you encouragement and hope and sustenance. And then we may come to you as well, Lord God, with hearts ready to worship you. We come excited. We come prepared to give you what is overflowing from our heart. So whether, Father, we come with thirsting hearts that are dry and desiccated from weeks and stress that have uh, just drained us of all life, or whether we come with hearts overflowing, ready to praise you. We, we know that you accept us. And we know that you call us into your presence, both to receive our praise and then to fill us once again with encouragement and hope and light and the water of life that sustains us, not only in this life, but in the life to come. So we pray, Lord God, as we hear your word, uh, this Psalm 87 that talks about the glorious City of Zion, your church, Father, which you have founded, which is established upon the rock, in which we encounter the risen Lord and receive that water of life that comes from your Son. We ask that you would encourage our hearts, that you would receive our praise, Father, that you would revive and awaken and fill us anew with the water of life, the spirit of joy that is promised to those who put their faith and trust in Christ. So, Father, we come to you this morning and we ask for you to be present now as you are. Speak to us, make us receptive, help us, Lord God, also to apply your word that we might always worship you. For we ask and pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. So we're continuing in our walk through the uh, Psalms of the 80s. This week we're on Psalm 87. Next week, if you want to look and read ahead, you can, it'll be Psalm 89. We're going to skip Psalm 88 uh, because I preached that uh, a couple of years ago. And uh, you can go back in the archives and, uh, and find that, uh, that, that sermon, I'm sure. So Psalm 87 is a psalm. We're told of the sons of Korah, a song. And it starts by saying, On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion, More than all the dwelling places of Jacob, glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab 
and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the people, this one was born there. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs of joy are in you. <clears throat> as I said, Psalm 87 is a, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Who are the sons of Korah? Well, they are descendants um, of, a Levitic, of a Levitical family, Levi being the, the tribe of the priests. Um, one part of that family uh, became temple doorkeepers and guardians. Uh, the sons of Korah are responsible for a number of psalms, at least a dozen. Um, psalm 84 is one of them. Uh, you know, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in your house. That's one of the psalms of the sons of Korah. Another part of the sons of Korah uh, became singers and musicians in the temple. So David had organized them. So they are familiar with the temple, in other words. So when Korah writes this, it is with this uh, passion, if you will, for God's presence, which is represented by the temple. And the temple, of course, uh, is in the city of Zion. And Psalm 87, then, describes... God's plans for the city of Zion, the city we're told that he founded and about which glorious things are spoken. However, <clears throat> the, despite the optimism of the psalm, um, the original audience of Psalm 87 would find it very hard to believe that God's plan for the city uh, included such a glorious future. Uh, it looks ahead, does the psalm, to a time when Zion will be this magnetic center of spiritual activity, that God will draw all nations into the city, uh, making them part of his covenant community. But when the psalm is written, at the time Korah writes this psalm, Jerusalem resembled, well, it looked more like Sandy, um, Sandy Hook, the day after Hurricane Sandy went through. Or, if you can reach back further in your memory, it looked more like ground zero than it did this glorious, shining city on a hill. So Korah writes this psalm at a moment when Jerusalem lays in ruins, if you will. There's rubble all about. And so you get this sense that there is this hope that he's wanting to inject into himself, but also his readers, that... Where we would see rubble and ruin, God sees renewal and revitalization. That where we see devastation and division, God sees restoration and renovation. That where we see enemies and adversaries, God sees a city that is filled with people living in peace with one another, all of whom are redeemed and created to be a covenant community gathered to praise his name and to spread his fame. So this psalm is written at a time when things are very dark, but it paints this gloriously bright future for God's people as well as God's uh, own church, if you will. The, the theme of the psalm is plain, <clears throat> that God has prepared a place for his people. It's a place that he founded. It's a place that he established. 
and this people that he gathers to himself, it begins with Israel, begins with those who are born in Zion, if you will, and then it will expand to include those who are born outside the covenant community, but God will welcome into it as well. We see this in all the Old Testament. We see this especially in the prophets. We just read about it and studied it in Zechariah, that there is this desire of God to start with a chosen people and then to expand that people to include those that were not part of that original covenant community. And so Zion becomes this place of magnetic spiritual opportunity, if you will, or God is just drawing people into himself, this city that he has founded. And <clears throat> there are a couple of characteristics about Zion that are worth noting. First of all, it is a, a place of glorious and permanent uniqueness. So look at verses 1 through 3. The psalm begins, on the holy mount stands the city he founded. Other translations will have it even more simply. He founded this city. On this rock, this foundation is his. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. The Psalms are filled with, with songs of adoration and praise and God's delight with his city, this place that he has chosen to place his name. Psalm 132, verse 13 says, The Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. The interesting thing, of course, is that there was nothing particularly attractive about Jerusalem, the location of Jerusalem, that would cause God to desire it more than all the dwellings of Jacob. All the seas, if you will. That's what the dwellings referred to. There was... You expand that to even our own salvation. There was nothing particularly attractive about you and I that caused God to desire relationship enough with us to send his son to die for our sins. All of this is predicated on the fact that God makes this choice, that God makes this decision. He simply loves Zion and delights in it as the place of his dwelling. Because, point of fact, God loves and delights in his own steadfast love and glory. And because God delights in his own steadfast love and glory, he loves and delights in the well-being of his people whom he has gathered to praise his glory and his steadfast love. That sounds odd to us, that sounds egotistical to us, that we would have a God that would delight in his own glory, but consider the opposite. <laughs> consider worshiping a God who doesn't delight in his own glory. Consider a God who doesn't take pleasure in his own goodness, in his own mercy, in his own grace. You've hung around people who don't like themselves. You may be one of them. But to worship a God who delights in his own glory and then desires to share that glory with us, incarnate with his Son, is a God that is inviting us to participate in that glory and then to share it and to spread it. And so God loves because he chooses to love, and he chooses to love because he is love. And so God loves this city, he loves this church that he has founded to be a display of his glory. But notice something about this, that the pattern that God develops within not only the Old Testament, but it carries on into the New, 
is that before God chooses a, a, a people, if you will, to bear his name, he first chooses a place for them to be. He chooses Zion as a place where his name will be worshipped, his glory celebrated. And then what does he do? He then puts the people there to worship him. That's the way God works. He chooses a place. He makes the place hospitable and inhabitable for people. And then he puts people in it. How do we know this? Well, we know because this is what he did in the Garden of Eden. First, he prepares this world, and then he narrows that world that he's prepared into this specific place called the Garden of Eden. And then after he has finished the garden, which is really a, a temple, he places Adam and Eve, he plants Adam and Eve in the garden he planted to tend it. The amazing thing about what happens there in the Garden of Eden is because it resembles a temple, and even the, the physical temple that is eventually built by Solomon represents that temple garden, if you will, in, in Genesis, that after you've finished building the temple, the last item that you would put in it is the God that you would worship. So in Eden, when God finishes creating that garden, the last thing he puts there is not a God, but he puts a human being who represents his own image and likeness to bear his glory and to reflect his glory back to him. So Adam and Eve are, are prepared a place and then they are put there. Before God brings Israel into the promised land, he sets the promised land aside. And so the way God works is he chooses a place, he prepares it, and then he puts us there. God builds his church, and then he calls us into his church uh, to worship him and to serve him. John 14, the night that Jesus is betrayed, he is uh, telling his disciples that he has to go because he is going to his father's house, which has many rooms, and he's going to prepare a place for them, speaking as a heavenly bridegroom, making a place ready for his bride, he says, I am preparing a place for you so that when I come again, I will take you to be where I am. So even now, as we worship God here on earth, Christ is preparing and has prepared a place for his people. So how can we rest assured, if you will, in our salvation? How can we rest assured in the fact that having confessed faith in Christ... God will not let us fall away. It's because Christ himself has promised that those he has redeemed, those he has drawn out of the world to have a relationship with the Father, I have a place prepared for you. So your life may look like Zion. It may look like Zion looked like to Korah and his initial audience. Devastation, chaos, ruin. But that's only the appearance. The reality is, there is a glorious future that God has prepared for his people because he has prepared a place for them. And if God has prepared a place for them, he has secured their standing in that place. So Psalm 87 is a promise to God's people that regardless of what your eyes see, even regardless of what your heart may tell you, God's word is this. I have prepared a place for you. And if I have prepared a place for you, I am going to make sure you inherit that place. 
because I have set it apart for you, and I have set you apart for that place. Zion is a place of glorious and permanent uniqueness because it is founded not by man, not by human ingenuity or architecture, but it is founded by the God who is the Lord Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, the creator of all that is. We sang about it. Planets and molecules come into existence at his word. And if he does that, if he is powerful enough to create simply by speaking, certainly he is powerful enough to sustain, preserve, maintain, and save all those who put their hope in his word. Zion, the Zion that is spoken of in Psalm 87, specifically in context certainly refers to this physical location. But as we move into the New Testament, the New Testament writers began to see that Zion represented more than just a physical geographical location. It represents a people. It represents a nation of every people and language, every tribe and tongue. Zion comes to represent the church, the church specifically of the Lord Jesus Christ, this God-gathered community in which God's people experience God's presence on a daily, non-stop basis. It's where they experience his steadfast love, his mercy, his grace, his discipline, his loving kindness, his instruction. The church is Zion. It's the city of God. It's why when I, when I prayed, um, just, just by way of reminder, that we, we think when we come to church on Sunday or we come to church for Bible study or even when we gather, but particularly when we gather on Sunday, that we're coming to a physical building. And it can become kind of wearisome. We get a little maybe, it's just like, well, this Sunday I've got to go to church just because this is what I do. The writer to the Hebrews was writing to a group of Christians who were facing persecution. And maybe we're thinking the same thing, that here we are, the small band of people up against the Roman Empire. How are we going to sustain ourselves? What is going on? And the writer of the Hebrews reminds them that when you gather together, you have come, he says, to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And if that isn't enough to get your blood pumping and excited about it, he says, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant into the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So Psalm 87, and anticipating what the writer of the Hebrews would say, we gather together, there is a heavenly host that is now assembled in this room that we join with in adoring and praising God because Zion is a place of unique and glorious permanence. It exists and will continue to exist. Because what God has created, no man can destroy. And if he has founded his church upon an indestructible word, upon an indestructible life, upon an indestructible Savior, there is nothing and no one on this earth that can destroy it. The city that God has founded is founded on the rock of ages. The church is indestructible because the God who founded it and the Savior who redeemed it and upon whom it is built, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, Paul writes in Ephesians, 
It's indestructible. That's what makes it unique. It's not a human institution. It is a divine institution. It is a living thing that God has breathed and continues to breathe life into. The glorious things about which are spoken about Zion are not the result of its political importance, its military greatness, its economic power, or even its cultural influence. The glorious things that are spoken about Zion come from the fact that it is the place that God has founded. It originates and is generated by the founder of it, not necessarily the people who are in it. But the people who are in it are called to worship the one and to proclaim the glory of the one who founded it. It's this place of safety, this place of refuge, this place of protection, this place of life. We, we sang uh, Newton's great hymn, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken. O Zion, city of our God, he whose word cannot be broken, form thee for his own abode. On the rock of ages founded, what can shake thy sure repose? With salvation's wall surrounded, thou mayest smile at all thy foes. On one level, that's beautiful poetry. And we can dismiss it simply as poetry. But on another level, that poetry is founded upon a truth. It's a truth that enables the Apostle Paul to say, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will keep will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It's a, it's a poetry that's founded upon the fact that God, who promises through His Son that just as He is in the Father's hand, we are in the Son's hand, and no one can snatch us from that. It is that sense of assurance. There are, there are times, that you may be going through one of those moments where there is essentially a dryness, a, a, just a, a drought in your soul where God seems and feels a million miles away. He is not. My perception of God's absence is actually evidence of his presence. How can I miss something that is not there? It's like C.S. Lewis when he says, if I have a thirst for something, it implies there is something to satisfy that thirst. So if I have a sense of God's absence, by reason of some kind of logic, there must be some presence that I'm missing. And the Word tells us that He is not out there, but He is as close as the breath in my lungs. He is as imminent as the power and assurance of his word. He is present as he is when we gather together, which is why we gather together. Because there may be others in our midst who are going through seasons of dryness and drought, as well as seasons where they are just overflowing with God's presence. And we can feed off that. We can feed off that encouragement. We can be reminded, ah, I am not an outcast for feeling like this, but there are, in a sense, seasons when you go through dryness. Remember, Korah is writing this when Jerusalem is rubble. What could be a greater season of dryness than that? 
or if you will, some external evidence of God's absence, then the whole glorious holy city lies in ruins, and yet here is this word of hope that he speaks. There is a future here. So you cling to that word. You cling to that hope because there is a truth to it because it's better than the despair that is racking and wreaking havoc within your soul. God has prepared a place for his people. It is a place of glorious and unique permanence. It is a place where he welcomes all who would put their hope and trust in him. Amazingly, he's also prepared a place and he has a plan for his enemies, but it isn't the kind of plan that you would expect. Because Zion becomes then, in the second half of the psalm, it becomes this ever-expanding community which is deeply loved by God. Verses 4 through 7, the, the tone, if you will, of the psalm shifts. Among those who know me, says the Lord, I mention Rahab, which is another name for Egypt, and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre and Cush. This one was born there, they say, and of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her, for the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the people, this one was born there. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs, all my springs of joy, all my fountains of joy are in you. God loves Zion so much that he wants all the nations of the earth to live in it. It's, Peter talks about this, that God desires that all should come to repentance, that all would dwell in his presence and live in harmony and peace. It's expressed here in the psalm in verse 2, the Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Verse 2 implies that the Lord loves the gates of Zion so much that they are left wide open in order to welcome in strangers and aliens who are not normally participants and inhabitants of the city. In the time that the psalm was written, biblical times, the gates of the city were closed at night to protect the city against intruders and invaders. It's the same way that you know, we have security systems in our home or our apartment. We lock our doors before we go to bed. We lock our cars if we leave them out on the street. We want them to be kept safe. But if we wanted just anybody to drive our car, we would leave the door open and the keys in there and say, go ahead, drive your car. That's what God is doing. The gates of the city are wide open because I, I'm inviting into that city any who are willing to come and worship and adore and praise me and be part of my community. Zion's gates are left open day and night. Open gates symbolize God's love for Zion as well as his desire for people to gather in his name from every tribe and language, every people and nation. So we have, if you will, an impetus as those who are already in the city, we have an impetus and a motivation to be very missional in our outlook, in our activity, to be inviting those who may be living outside the city, where by the grace of God and the power of his spirit and the transforming power and authority of God's word, enemies are turned into friends who are turned into worshipers, who are turned into brothers and sisters, followers of Christ, just as we who at one time were enemies of God. God redeemed us, God saved us, God put us on a solid rock, and then he filled our mouth with words of praise and adoration, and he filled our 
heart with the courage to tell others about who Jesus is. The prophets all speak about this. Isaiah, Zechariah especially, talk about the fact that in the latter days, Isaiah says, the mouth of the Lord shall be lifted up and all nations will flow into it. We read about in Zechariah 2 that the daughter of Zion is to rejoice because on that day, that glorious day, it says all nations will join themselves to the Lord. Paul talks about this in, in Ephesians 2. He's telling these Gentiles, these non-Jews, who were at one time strangers and aliens, outside the covenant community, you had no part in the promises of God. You were without hope and without God in the world. He says, but now in Christ, you who are far off have been drawn near. And one of, the, one of my favorite passages in Ephesians is Ephesians 2, 19 to 22. So, I don't know where you are this morning, whether you are in the kingdom and you're feeling sort of distant, or if you're not in the kingdom, you feel like I can never be good enough to come into God's presence. Listen to what Paul says about those who have been drawn near. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Peter says something similar in 1 Peter 2, coming to him as living stones, being built into a spiritual house, priests offering spiritual sacrifices to God. There is this design that God has. We know that God does not like sin. He hates sin. But we also know that God loves to redeem sinners. We know that God loves to draw people to himself so that in drawing us to his holiness, it is his holiness that leads us to repentance, his kindness that is displayed for us on the cross. So where we would seek to keep our distance, God is pursuing, 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 and not to condemn us, if you will. That would come later if we resist but if he draws us to himself, we see our sin killed on the cross in the person of his son. There is this glorious moment when we realize that God desires to be in relationship with us. The gates are also where business takes place. So if you want to enter the city, you've got to do business with God before you get into the city. Remember, in, in the book of Ruth, when Boaz is going to take Ruth as his wife, he waits at the city gates for the elders. And then he tells them, he says, I am, you know, the, the, the widow Ruth has returned, this Moabitess, one of the tribes that was considered an enemy of Israel. And he says, I intend to marry this woman, but if there is, there is a, a, a redeemer who is closer than I, that's where the transaction takes place. And the nearest kinsman says, I can't do that. It'll put my own uh, property in jeopardy. And then Boaz marries Ruth. <laughs> you come to God at the gates. You've been rejected by everyone else. You've been turned aside by friends. You've been turned aside by family. You've been abused. You've been rejected. And God says, I'll marry you. I'll take you in. I'll make you my own. I'll give you a place. I'll give you a name. 
I'll give you a purpose. I'll give you life. What do you need that I can't provide? What do you have that I haven't given to you? The gates are open. And he invites us to come in so that he could write our name in his register. So he can record it in the book of life. Because the last section of the psalm anticipates what the New Testament calls, it reveals to be the doctrine of adoption. Zion's greatness, you realize, lies in God's intention to keep those gates open. And to adopt into his covenant family, not only those who were born in the covenant community, but those who were born outside, that he may invite them in. The nations that are listed here, they are, if you will, a who's who of Israel's adversaries in the Old Testament. You got Egypt, you get Babylon, right? Egypt, 430 years of slavery, Babylon, the captivity, Nebuchadnezzar, and all of the nastiness that took place there. If you got Cush, you've got Tyre, you've got Philistia, right? The Philistines, right? Uh, Goliath, right? Fights for the Philistines. So all of these enemies at one time are now invited into the city to have their name recorded. So we think, oh, God can never forgive me, God can never love me. Are you kidding? Look at Psalm 87. By a miracle of God's grace, two of the greatest superpowers who are Israel's enemies are brought into the kingdom. And the sprawling extravagance of God's mercy is further displayed by Tyre and Cush and Philistia also being included. Zion is to be this place of refuge, this church that he has founded upon his son. Because if there's one place on earth where people should feel safe, it's the church. Now, we know from recent events, particularly report put out from the SBC, but in others as well, sometimes that is not the case. But that is human sin, not God's intention. Because God's design for the church is for it to be a place of safety, protection, and refuge. It is a place designed where the weary can find rest for their souls, where the abused can find healing, and where the victimized can find an advocate for justice. The church is where the forgotten can discover that they are not forgotten, but they are remembered. They are remembered especially by the one who created them in his image and his likeness. And they have meaning. They have value. They have dignity. The church is a place where we can confer that upon people by God's grace because we at one time knew what that felt like. And out of that grace, out of that mercy, we can overflow with that toward others. The church is a place where, in the words of the old, old hymn, where the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. Adoption is a wonderful, wonderful doctrine because it's true. No one comes to God unless he takes the initiative in inviting us to know him, right? No one comes to the Father, says Jesus, unless the Father draws him literally drags like you would, you would drop a bucket into a well and you drag the water from the well. No one comes to the Father unless... How are we drawn? We're drawn by the Word. We're drawn by the grace, the mercy, and the love of God. 
And this is love, says 1 John 4. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. We love because he first loved us. I said last week to to know God is a good thing. To be known by God is a greater thing. To love God is a good thing. To be loved by God is the even greater thing. Because I don't know about you, but sometimes my love goes cold. I wake up in the morning, I don't want to read my Bible. I just want to have a cup of coffee and wait for my eyes to clear so I can see where I'm going. But that doesn't change the fact that God loves me. I mean, I don't want to do the errands that I have to do on a particular day. But that doesn't mean God doesn't love me. I mean, I feel like praying on any particular day. I don't know how, I must be unique in this. I don't feel particularly like praying. Doesn't change the fact God loves me. So what brings me back to prayer? What brings me back to scripture? What brings me back to wanting to do the things God wants me to do? It's the fact that he loves me nevertheless. That he loves me in spite of those things. And, and, and with the help of the Spirit, my heart is warmed, and my spirit is energized, and my mind is renewed. And so you start with those first stumbling prayers. You may recite the Lord's Prayer. You may remember a portion of Scripture. And you hang on to that one thing. It may just be, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And let, you, let that carry you throughout the day. Psalm, it's a Psalm 36, verse 9, in your light we see light. That's enough. I can get by. I can swing on that. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. I remember reading a story about a young woman who every day would write on an index card and just, whatever she, you know, on her refrigerator, on her bathroom mirror, the dashboard of a car, I love God, I love God, I love God. And no matter how many times she saw that before her eyes, there was nothing. And then her, her pastor, was it me? Very wise man said, why don't you just change that to God loves me? Because that's what First John says. And that made all the difference. Psalm 87 is about that. It's about God having a plan for his people because he's prepared a place for his people. To know God is good. To be known by God is better. To love God is good. To be loved by God is even better. Because that love is going to carry us through on into eternity. All who come to Zion to claim God's kingship, says one author, are considered to be born in Zion. So you may be born in Philistia, you may be born in Cush, you may be born an enemy, but you can be born again as a city, as a member, as a citizen of the kingdom of Zion. Because that's how adoption works. It's how God delivers us from the domain of darkness and transforms us and transfers us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's the first part of Colossians. Read Colossians 1, 11 through 13. He has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We may be natural-born sinners, but by grace through faith in Christ, 
we can become spiritually born-again saints and members of the household of God. That's what Psalm 87 is about. God has prepared a place for those that he has redeemed. Adoption implies a change in status as well as citizenship. We go from being sinner to saint. We go from being outside to the inside. When I became a, a dual citizen in Canada, several weeks after I took the oath of citizenship, I got a little card with my picture on it, and I still have it. I'm a much younger man in that picture, thicker hair. It's also darker, and I had a fuller beard. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter how I've aged. Doesn't, how, doesn't matter how I have changed physically. That card tells me that no matter where I go, I'm a citizen of Canada, as well as a citizen of the United States. Doesn't matter how old you get, doesn't matter how weak you are, doesn't matter how feeble or even how strong you are. The one thing that never changes is God's promise to you that I have prepared a place for you and you are mine. And if I have prepared a place for you, I'm going to make sure you get there. That's the purpose of all my springs are in you, that there is life in that city. There's life in the church. It's a place where we are encouraged not only to serve God, but to serve one another and to serve our community. That the water of life that has satisfied us now flows out of us into the lives of others. The church is where we find life. It's where we discover God has prepared a place for us. It's a, a place where we experience refuge and peace and grace and joy and even discipline with love, all for the purpose of reflecting more and more the image of God. It's where we learn the blessings of our adoption as well as the responsibilities of belonging to a community. One of uh, J.I. Packer's most famous books, probably the one that put him on the map, it's, it's a classic and, and written probably long before many of you were born, Knowing God. It was one of the first books I read as a young believer way back in 1976. Adoption, he writes, is the highest privilege the gospel offers. Adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love, viewing God as father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. I don't know what your relationship was with your earthly father. I don't even know what your relationship is with your heavenly father, if you have one. But Packer's words point us in the direction of wanting to change our view of who God is for the better. As a loving father who cares for his own who brings us into relationship with him so that we are no longer alien, so that we're no longer alienated, that we feel, if you will, the closeness of his affection, not only to be in relationship with him, but to expand and be part of a larger community of faith that has also now been brought into relationship with him. In another section of Knowing God, Packer aims to answer a question the question is this, what does it mean then to be adopted into God's family? To answer the question, he quotes from a, a Puritan named Thomas Brooks, and Brooks writes this, Adoption is as if God said, you shall have as a 
true interest in all my attributes for your good. As my attributes are mine for my own glory, so they are yours. So my grace shall be yours to pardon you, and my power shall be yours to protect you. My wisdom shall be yours to direct you. My goodness shall be yours to relieve you. My mercy shall be yours to supply you. My glory shall be yours to crown you. We sang Newton's glorious hymn, and I'll just end with the last stanza just by way of reminder because it picks up what Brooks says about God's grace, power, wisdom, goodness, mercy, and glory. The last stanza, Savior, if of Zion city I through grace a member am, let the world deride or pity. I will glory in thy name. Fading are the world's vain pleasures, all their boasted pomp and show. Solid joys and lasting treasures, none but Zion's children know. Beloved, when we gather together, we do not simply come to a building made of brick and mortar or inhabited by humans made of flesh and blood. But as a writer of Hebrews would remind us, we come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Adam, solid joys and lasting pleasures none but Zion's children know. May we know those treasures, may we know those pleasures, and may we share them with joy with others who have yet to experience the power of adoption and of forgiveness through faith in Christ. Let us pray. You think about that.